I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at a country in the midst of a dangerous political crisis. I'm talking not about Britain or the US, but Congo. The Democratic Republic of Congo held presidential elections last month, which briefly held out the prospect of a peaceful political transition in a country with a tragic recent history. But it appears that the elections have been stolen, and the country is now once again poised on the brink of disorder. Joining me here in the studio is our East Africa correspondent, Tom Wilson, and on the line, Africa editor, David Pilling. Tom, a lot of the evidence for fraud has actually come from research by the FT. Can you explain what you found? Yeah, certainly. So last week, last Thursday, to be specific, the Congolese Electoral Commission announced that opposition leader Felix Shishikedi had won the vote, defeating the President Kabila's handpicked successor. And a lot of the opposition celebrated that as a great victory. It's the first time, in theory, an opposition leader has defeated or won a presidential election, and it could have led to the first transition of power at the ballot box. But almost immediately, alarm bells started to be raised, specifically by the Catholic Church, which ran the biggest election observation mission in the country. They had already been briefing diplomats at that point that, in fact, a different opposition leader, Martin Fayulu, had won. And the day after the Electoral Commission announced their results, they came out publicly on the record and stated that the Electoral Commission's tallies did not reflect the information that it had gathered from 40,000 observers around the country. So Mr. Fayulu took that information and petitioned the Constitutional Court immediately, calling for a recount of the vote. And there was a lot of reaction among the diplomatic and political sphere in Congo. The Financial Times, along with two other media organisations, then received a data leak from a whistleblower purporting to be the files downloaded from the Electoral Commission's central vote database. We analysed those and found that Mr. Fayulu won 59.4% of the vote, according to that data, defeating the proclaimed winner, Felix Chichikeri, by a massive margin. He only won 19% of the vote, according to those figures. Why are you so confident those figures are right? Those figures run to 49,000 lines of code. So they uh, used electronic voting machines? Exactly, they did. For the first time, the Electoral Commission introduced electronic voting machines in December. Ironically, the... Opposition candidate, Fuyulu in particular, criticised the potential use of those machines, warning that they might be used to rig the vote. The irony is that it seems that those voting machines may deliver Mr Fuyulu the transparency he's now demanded, because we're told that the data leak that we received are the electronic tallies that were stored by those voting machines and sent to a central database. The whistleblower that we spoke to confirmed that they had been downloaded from that database, and then our data analyst here at the FT was able to process them. Number one... The way in which the data was presented, the volume of the data, the orderly way in which the figures had been laid out on the page, the use of comma-separated values, all led strongly to the idea that this has been exported from an existing system and would have been very, very hard to tamper with. But most importantly, we were then able to run that data against the tallies that the Catholic Church's observers had made. And even though the Catholic Church's tallies represented 
a sample of 43% of the vote, so not all voting stations, but 43% randomly distributed across the country, we found an almost direct correlation with the results from the purported leak. Okay, so you're satisfied that the FT and others have now nailed the elections effectively been stolen. Do you think anything will happen now, or do you think that this fraudulent election ultimately is likely to stand? That is the million-dollar question right now, and it's a hugely pivotal moment for Congo. It's probably not helpful to guess, but I think what we need to consider is the fact that the power now sits with the Constitutional Court, which has to validate the announced results within one to two weeks. That Constitutional Court was set up by President Kabila. It's stacked with Kabila loyalists, and so people's confidence that that court would then decide to overrule the Electoral Commission's decision and either call for a recount or a rerun of the election is very, very low. It would be unprecedented in Congo. It wouldn't be unprecedented in Africa. The Kenyan Constitutional Court did exactly that in their last election. But in Congo, people remain very sceptical whether that's possible. And David, I mean, looking a bit further back, I mean, Congo has had really a very tragic history, more or less since independence. And indeed, the statistics of the numbers of people who've died or lost their lives directly or indirectly in war in Congo are really staggering, aren't they? They are. And I think it's important, actually, to realise that Congo has had a tragic history, not only since independence, but before independence. I mean, remember, this was the possession of King Leopold II, the personal possession. And it was turned into a giant rubber plantation where farmers who didn't meet their quotas had their arms chopped off. This has been a nation that was brutalised right from the start and had a very difficult birth into really the the modern world as a modern nation state with almost no graduates because even though it was taken over by Belgium as a formal colony after Leopold, it was still a very brutalised place. And so, yes, it's had a very difficult history. It's a vast country, uh, two-thirds the size of Europe, with virtually no roads, very difficult to get around. So you have different groups in different parts of the country, really with very little interaction. And there's been lots of militias, there's been lots of outside interference, there's been lots of interest in Congo because of its vast mineral resources. And so the extractive relationship that Congo has suffered at the hands of the rest of the world has really continued into the modern age. And that is what Congo suffers from now. You've really had, in a sense, a kind of a a collusion between the elites that control Congo or control bits of it, because you can never really control the whole country, and outside interests which have been more interested in Congo's mineral resources. It's copper and increasingly it's cobalt, which is running our iPhones and will run our electric cars. So is that still essentially the background explanation for why Mr Kabila is unwilling to cede power to somebody who would actually cut him out of influence because there's so much money at stake? I think so, yes. I mean, Mr Kabila has been in power 17 years. I think he's got used to it. I think maybe he could disappear and he'd be fine. But there is a whole entourage around him whose wealth, whose position really depends on the patronage networks that he has set up. And for them, there would be nothing worse than a genuine change of authority. And so I think there's been an unholy struggle to stay in power. And if they can't stay in power, then to make sure that they can control whoever is in power. And I think that is the backdrop to what's been going on. And Tom, obviously at the moment, it looks like Martin Fayulu was the person who won and who a lot of hopes would be invested in if somehow he could emerge as the victor. 
And yet Congo has had a history of people coming to power, indeed Kabila's father, and people saying, well, at last there's a political change, and then the next ruler wasn't that much better. And some people have raised question marks about Fayulu's relationship to a very rich businessman and so on. You know the man. What do you make of him? All of my interactions with Mr. Fayulu to date have demonstrated that he seems to be a man of character. He had a career in the private sector for 30 years. He worked for ExxonMobil for most of that time. Returned to Congo to start a political career just after the millennium and was elected to parliament in 2006. And since then has been a very staunch and quite honourable critic of the government. The first time I met him, it was in a tiny political party office with no electricity. He was sitting in the dark, you know, shuffling papers, doing the kind of typical day-to-day grunt work of politics. And that is really what he's done for most of the last decade. And he was only really thrust into the limelight in the past 12 months as a potential consensus candidate for this amorphous group of political opponents. And I do believe that that is potentially his strength. I mean, there's no telling what he would be like as a president yet. And we all know the potential of power to corrupt and change us. But I think one of the potential opportunities for Congo is the fact that on coming to power, he didn't have a huge support base. He was a consensus candidate. And thus, he would have to rule and govern in a conciliatory, inclusive way. And David, again, without wishing to sound too gloomy, what about the argument that Congo, after all these years of war, exploitation, and its huge size that you mentioned, its lack of infrastructure, essentially it's almost ungovernable. I suppose that is one way of putting it. It's certainly a very hard task for anybody. And however good a person Martin Fayoulou is, and I don't know him, so I can't vouch for him, but even if he were an absolutely impeccable leader with a good plan, you know, he'd be taking on a hugely difficult task. We also have to remember that To some extent, he is representing other people who are behind him. For example, Moise Katumbi, who was the governor of Katanga State. Now, Mr. Katumbi was very close to Joseph Kabila, the president, until they fell out. And some people say that Mr. Katumbi is a very good businessman and ran Katanga well. Others say he's pretty much cut from the same cloth and one shouldn't expect too much more from him than others. So all I'm saying is don't hold your breath both in terms of the groups who have come forward to seize power and in terms of the country that they will be faced with. Because, you know, as you've mentioned, DRC has some of the worst statistics in terms of child mortality, in terms of longevity. um, It's got a crippled health service, um, a very poor school system. It's really a very difficult place. I suppose what one could say is that half properly governed The only way is up. And there are resources. I mean, resources have been the curse of many countries. But there is a wealth in Congo that properly harnessed does provide a basis. Of course, it's got the Congo River, um, huge hydroelectric potential, for example. If you had decent leadership, you could begin to turn the country around. And it's so big and so important that that could be very influential for the whole continent or certainly the whole southern and central part of the continent. Which raises, Tom, doesn't it, the question of, well, what does the rest of the southern half of the continent, the regional organisations, make of all this? Because it's in nobody's interest to have a massive failed state there. Is there any sign that they're going to try to intervene or is it just too much to take on? So far, the messages have been completely mixed. 
The starting point would be to say that if any of the regional groups, the African Union or the Southern African Development Community came forward and demanded en masse a recount, that would be quite unprecedented in Africa for the African governments to turn. Normally, the policy is we don't interfere in elections unless there have been serious human rights violations. For them to step in and challenge what on the face of it looks like an opposition victory anyway would be unusual. That said, there are clearly elements within the African landscape who are not happy with what they've seen. There's particularly mixed messages coming out of South Africa where there appears to be a split between President Ramaphosa, who would appear to be more open to an intervention, to calling for a recount, and members of his foreign ministry who have seemed to side more strongly with the regime in the interests of maintaining stability. We will know much, much more after Thursday when SADC and the other regional groups will meet at the African Union. That's going to be an absolutely vital meeting, and whatever statement comes out of that will have huge impact. Okay, and a final word from you, David. I mean, it's notoriously hard to predict how these things are going to play out, but it looks like this is a new period of instability for Congo, which historically has ended in violence. Is that still a threat? Yes, I think it is. I mean, certainly we're entering uncertain waters where Mr Kabila and his proxies are very keen to stay on, where there are now other groups that maybe have legitimate demands on the presidency and where you have a very mixed scene in the countries around from Angola to Rwanda, from the AU, South Africa, Zambia. As Tom says, the signalling has been quite mixed. To some extent, they want stability, but to some extent, they might want a decent transition. And there has been a precedent in West Africa when Yahya Jameh lost the election um, and refused to go. ECOWAS, an economic grouping, really forced him out with pressure. Now, SADC has been much more reluctant to do that, but this could be its moment. And as Tom says, I think we do really, rather than predicting what's going to happen, we have to wait and watch as this unfolds. OK, well, with that, thank you very much indeed to David Pilling and to Tom here in the studio. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.